I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues, from Say Her Name and Me Too to the war on civil rights and the global rise of fascism. This is an idea travelogue. It lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars, and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. All right, good evening, everyone. On March 26, the African American Policy Forum organized a panel in partnership with the Hammer Museum entitled Black Women and the Me Too Movement. This is a long overdue conversation about an issue that doesn't get the attention it deserves either in the black community or in the broader community. And that frankly is the sexual vulnerability and victimization of African-American women. The panel was part of AAPF's annual week on the status of black women and girls, Her Dream Deferred. Every March since 2015, we've devoted the last week of March to lifting up the particular experiences and the barriers facing black women. This year's Her Dream Deferred took place in Los Angeles. So with Hollywood as a backdrop, the experiences of black women in entertainment became a centerpiece of the week. There is a deep history behind this Me Too movement that is all too often erased when the movement becomes part of the political mainstream. So one of the things that AAPF has been committed to is lifting up the voices and the experiences of black women, girls, and femmes, and also fighting the gentrification of issues like Me Too. The panel brought together six incredible women who we'll hear from throughout this episode. Actor and Time's Up women of color activist Rashida Jones, supermodel and Bill Cosby accuser Beverly Johnson, cultural critic Jamila Lemieux, historian Stephanie Jones Rogers, Mute R. Kelly co-founder Kenyette Tisha Barnes, who you'll remember from episode two of Intersectionality Matters, and Dee Barnes, my co-host for today's episode. Show of hands, if you guys are familiar with the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, right? Well, my story is Dr. Dre and Andre Young. Dee Barnes is a recording artist and television personality. She's known for her performance in West Coast hip-hop duo Body and Soul, as well as for her role as former host of Fox video music show Pump It Up. Andre Young is a friend of mine. He was a friend of mine. She is also known for surviving the brutal violence of Dr. Dre, also known as Andre Young, who publicly attacked Dee in 1991 over a perceived slight on Dee's show, Pump It Up. We did a sh an interview with the group NWA. Um, by this time, Ice Cube had left the group. So there was a lot of tension there. The producers mixed an interview together which showed Ice Cube in a rebuttal against NWA, and the retribution was on me. Dee bravely spoke out about the harrowing attack a few weeks ago at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles. There was a record release party, a Def Jam record release party, full of industry people, and um, he was there. Dre was there, but I, I wasn't in fear 
because I felt he would never do that to me. If you guys are familiar with recently a video that just came out where this man was kicking this woman on a train and everybody stood around and watched, I could relate. Everyone stood around and watched. While no I was one assaulted. stepped in. No one tried. To no one. There was one person that stepped in. He he worked for the company. He tried to step in, and um, he had the bodyguard that was there was holding off people with a gun. So he pistol whipped the guy that tried to help me. Knocked out two teeth. This was brutal. This was not a smack. I ran into the women's restroom, and he followed me in there. Trapped me in the bathroom. Um, I was on the ground, he had his knee in my chest, uh, foot against the door to keep people from coming in. So he was on top of me. And one of the things that people never ever ask me is, what happened to you in that bathroom? They just assumed that it was just a physical assault. It, it absolutely made no sense. If you guys have recently seen uh, the Defiant Ones where he said he was out of his fucking mind, mm -hmm. he was. Mm -hmm. He was definitely out of his mind. But he knew exactly what he was doing. A few weeks after the event, Dee joined me at UCLA to catch up and to reflect on some of the highlights from that evening. After joining me in one of my law school seminars, the two of us sat down in the studio to delve further into her story and to rebroadcast some of what had happened during the panel. Here's what we talked about. Today, I'm delighted to bring Dee Barnes on as co-host for this episode of Intersectionality Matters. Now, I have to tell you, I'm a little nervous because she has way, way more experience than I do hosting. Dee is a former VJ and host of Fox's Pump It Up, which is legendary in the hip-hop world. Hey, Dee. Hey, Kim. What's up? What's up, world? So, Dee, it was such an honor when... The honor was mine. I mean, Let me tell you, to be amongst those women, those powerful women, all of you guys together and uh, sharing our experiences. Yeah. It was yeah. amazing. First of all, I was pinching myself because, you know, you answered the call. Like, you know, my girl Jamila was oh, just Jamila. like, shout out to Jamila. Jamila she pulled me in. She pulled so me in. We were, you know, wanting to have this conversation for, for a while, um, particularly bringing together some of the sisters who had had abusive experiences with well-known beloved members of the african-american right. community but you know the thought that we could get y'all was like how's that gonna happen so i say to jamila you know uh can you get d and she's oh man yeah i'm, I'm i guess y'all twitter friends. yeah we're twitter friends you know what i mean like, we were introduced for our mutual friend and like when she called when she messaged me that you guys were pulling me and i was like i was overwhelmed because i, I felt like this was an opportunity for me to to step out there on faith and to express something that like for the first time that's going to be listened. People are going to listen to because I've told my story before mm -hmm. and at different times, you know, when you think about everybody brings up the time. Uh, it's been over um, close to 30 years for the incident, but that's hard to believe. Uh, it's, 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 but it's it's really like 28. It's still raw. Though. It's, it's still, still very, fresh. it's still raw and it's very, very fresh and it's even more relevant. Mm hmm. And mm -hmm. so the time is now. Yeah, <laughs> the time, yeah. the time's up. Yeah, right. <laughs> the time's exactly. up. Exactly. So you you had said that um, you told the story a few times, but um, not. I mean, 
why do you think there haven't been more moments where you've been called into this conversation, especially after Me Too finally arrived in the entertainment industry? Why weren't you the first person on the list that people were like, hey, you know what, we need to call up Dee Barnes? Let me tell you, I think it's what you just said a few minutes ago because it's still resonating with me. You said unpacking layers of denial. Mm. That could be my (laughs) mixtape. Girl, put me on that, could, that could be that could be my mixtape. <laughs> Unpacking layers of denial because yes, that's what it is. That. People are in denial about what happened to me. Right. And one of the things that I say, and I, I brought it before, like no one, ha- when he followed me into that bathroom mm-hmm. and continued the assault, no one asked me what happened to you in that bathroom. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe because they didn't want to know. Yeah. What was that experience like for you to be, you know, in that space with those women talking about these issues? Uh, I mean. Such a gift, such a blessing. I want to first thank you for even inviting me into that circle. Um, to sit there in between Beverly Johnson to my right, Kenyette to my left, one dealing with Bill Cosby, the other one dealing with, you know, R. Kelly, and then have me in the middle there was so powerful for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was so validating. It was a moment. It was a moment for me, a moment of um, getting closer to that closure, mm. get, getting closer to that um, wholeness. Mm-hmm. It was very healing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I I hadn't had that opportunity before. And to have that time, that space where I was able to release that mm-hmm. was amazing and powerful. Yeah. And yeah. emotional. You saw I got emotional. It was. I got mm-hmm. emotional because it was... Um, it was a it was a happy moment for me and not happy in the sense that, you know, I'm reliving this horrific moment in my life. But I'm just like that. I've come this far. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And the journey was like it's continuing. So it was another moment of growth. Yeah. yeah. And um, I wouldn't have had that opportunity if it wasn't for you ladies. And you were so, you know, courageous that night to talk about the ongoing consequences. Uh-huh. I mean, this was almost 30 years ago, but the material dimensions were very real and still are right you know very real i mean to 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 think back now i mean i would have never i never looked at it as i'm about to risk it all Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. not in a million that was not where my mindset was my mindset was on justice Mm -hmm. not just justice for me but i couldn't i couldn't allow i couldn't live with myself if i just kind of um dealt with my own uh pain Mm-hmm. trauma mm-hmm. and not think about those that come behind me right and when you say if risk possible. it all um your decision to go public with what had happened my decision was to to seek justice to to go far with this like this i have to report this to the police and mm-hmm. we all know that the police is not a friendly mm-hmm. part of our community mm-hmm. um the irony of the person that i was uh you know, involving the police in, wrote a song called Fuck the Police. <laughs> look at right, look at the, right. look, the irony of that. So yeah, I called right, the police right, right. on Mr. Fuck the Police. <laughs> and see, you know, hip hop is a, is a, is a mm. um, code of the streets, so to speak. Yes, right. And so that's what I did was considered like snitching. Mm-hmm. But why mm-hmm. is it considered snitching when we want to be, when we want people to be held accountable for their actions? Exactly. And and who is putting into place the mechanisms for accountability? Right. Because that, that whole critique of snitching mm-hmm. when there is nothing there. And, right. and just to put a point on it, 
was anything ever done inside the community, inside the hip hop community, inside the black community to hold him accountable for uh, for for violence that, you know, it didn't even happen behind closed doors. Right. I mean, there was no question I about mean, he, he said, she said, mm-mm. he said he did. Everybody saw it. Right. And bragged about it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, wasn't I wasn't just someone I was on TV every week on a, on a mm-hmm. network. Mm-hmm. Didn't matter. So, I mean, what other network do you know let their allow something to happen to the talent? Right. And just there was no institution, mm-hmm. no informal group that were prepared to say, "Hey, yo, yo, you know what? Right. It can't go down like that." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're supposed to. You're supposed to abstain from right. seeking justice in any way. You exactly. Can. I'm supposed to be quiet. Yeah, yeah. See, and that's the thing that that code of silence. I'm not saying he didn't receive any backlash, probably privately, mm. but nothing publicly. And did you receive and the incident, support? And the incident happened. It was very public. Mm-hmm. Support, same thing, very mm. privately, mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. publicly. Right, right. And um, really one of the first people to publicly uh, support me was Dream Hampton. Mm-hmm. She wrote the article on it, um, you know, calling out the guys on their violence and the incident. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And let's just say Dream Hampton is a, a common thread through throughout all of this these conversations. Mm-hmm. Dream Hampton is the producer of Surviving R. Kelly, so mm-hmm. she's she's been on the right side and been taking oh, yeah. hits for, for her activism. exposing yeah. this dimension of Black women's vulnerability. Mm-hmm. She refused to be quiet. She refused to be. Silent. You refused to be quiet. Right. Beverly Johnson refused to be quiet. Kenyette Barnes. So it, it's a it backlash. is a small, there's a small community of women who are refusing to be quiet. And a lot of the experiences that you all have talked about, it, particularly that night, right. have been some of the consequences of that refusal to be silent. I mean, for any woman that comes out speaking her truth, there's always backlash. But it's a special kind of animosity towards black women. And, you know, um, your sister, and I'm, I'm saying that uh, right. in jest, can right. get bond. Yes, because that's what people you know? think right now, because we have the same last name and they are attacking her i asked her about well who are the people Hmm. um who have been you know coming after you right right? and surprisingly i guess to some but not to others of us it was other women oh yes it was other sisters it was other black women so she talked a little bit about that let's hear about some of that it's that degree of vitriol that happens just because you want to stand in a space to hold people accountable. So yes, to that question about black women who sometimes our aunties wear lipsticks and sometimes they're wolves. And you gotta be able to discern. I teach my 13 year old daughter discernment. Everyone who comes to you is not gonna look like a monster. They're gonna look like you in most cases. It is discernment. It is listening with your gut. It is listening with your intuition. It is when that little twinge happens and you know it's not right that's when you get out the situation I have walked out of many conversations of black women who profess to be about black women and girls anytime you walk into a space with black women and we're talking about sexual violence human trafficking especially sex trafficking or anything of that nature and they lead with you gotta have better self esteem that to me is the red flag because it is completely that is victim blaming in another term to to take the the responsibility off of sexual violence off the predator 
and put it on a child. That is what that call for self-esteem is really about. I've walked out of so many meetings because they want black girls to learn self-esteem and wear longer skirts and not show cleavage and not twerk. A twerk has never gotten any, a twerk has never raped anybody. Rapists rape people. So that's Kenyette Barnes, founder of Mute R. Kelly. So I wonder, you know, whether your experience is like that as well. Oh, and what absolutely. do you make of that? First of all, what does it do to you when you can't count on other sisters who know that this stuff is not right. fabricated? Right. You know? I mean, in your case, it's not the case that people thought, Dre? We never thought he right, would take right. a hand to a woman. Right? Yes, it's not like yes. it was like a shock or anything Exactly. Like that. Um, yeah, it's mind-boggling to me. It's, it, I don't understand how... You know, like I've seen a lot with Kenyette. Um, a lot of women are attacking her, defending R. Kelly. Like I said, social media plays a different role in it. When my my incident happened so long ago, it was before really the the whole uh, social media. There weren't all of these different apps where you can speak on it. Mm-hmm. For a woman, it seems to affect her whole life, not just a career, her whole life, you know, financially. Mm-hmm. Um you know, all of a sudden, for a perfect example, is all the women with Weinstein. If he didn't get what he wanted, he blocked them completely. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, and told people specifically to not hire them. They're a problem. See, because women get the um, the title of uh, difficult, 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 especially black women. Especially. We, we get the angry mm-hmm. black woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the only thing worse than being a difficult woman is to be black and difficult. We that's <laughs> the point. And so for me, uh, me personally, it has been. I lost my entire, like my whole career just kind of like disappeared. Because of something someone did to you. Some Something someone did to me and they don't want to be reminded of it, mm. even though I can't think of the right words for yeah. it. But basically they don't even reminded of what happened. Right. And, and you're I'm not just talking about me. Oh, yeah. walk, I yeah. mean, uh, you know, all of the women that you can, you can make disappear. You don't have to well, think about and, it. And the, and the so you starve them out. You starve them out financially. Yes. You know what right. I mean? So that they disappear. Mm-hmm. So you know, they're not traveling you in your circle. You don't have right. to see them. You don't have to deal with them. You get banished. You get banished. You get ostracized. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? You get, you become a joke, mm-hmm. a punchline. I look at all the things they say about Monica Lewinsky, things they say about Anita Hill. And these should have been red flags for me (laughs) in a major way. Mm -hmm. But you're always in that space where you think um, it's not going to happen to me. Mm -hmm. It happens to women and it's happened to women around me. Mm -hmm. But somehow... So, and when you say this happened, the the experience of a violence, um, sexual violence, just any type of violence I'm talking about to Mm -hmm. a woman. Right. We are all, you know... Um, po- the possibility of us experiencing it is high, and then the consequences of that. I mean, that I the, think the is consequences of, of seeking justice is mm-hmm. almost um, another assault. So another do, assault do you on think a woman. That if you had not determined to seek justice, that the economic and career consequences might not have been as severe. Yes, I mm-hmm. definitely. I definitely. So you were believe. being punished. I am being punished for speaking out mm-hmm. yes mm-hmm. and um on on several levels mm-hmm. but definitely i think if i had uh remained silent mm-hmm. and um complicit mm-hmm. is the word i'm looking for i think that my path would have been different mm-hmm. it would have definitely been different and so as as it 
transpired, what was the immediate consequence of your refusing to stay silent in terms of your career? Actually, it wasn't immediate. It was very slow. Mm. It was very a very slow process. Um, starting with one of the first things about a restraining order. I mean, I talk about it. I go into depth the book, mm-hmm. but I asked for a restraining order, and I was denied the restraining order. On what basis? Yeah, I know, huh? I need to. I, like, I need to bring these legal papers to you, I Professor know. Crenshaw, so you can I look know. over we this. Need to talk about. Yeah, this. we need to talk about it. But How the judge denied that, that happened you, in the open. Everybody judge denied saw. the the restraining order on a basis that we both work in the same industry. How about oh, that? Wow. And I wasn't, all of a sudden I wasn't working. Yeah, that's what I find (laughs) Who is he protecting? Who is he protecting? So so the law doesn't protect you. No. Right? Because you guys are in the same space. But the industry protects him. Right, right. Because the restraining order basically was you got kicked out. Yes. (laughs) The restraining order was, it was a reverse restraining order if there's such a thing. (laughs) Well, yeah, that, okay, you need to put that in the, that's a chapter of the book. (laughs) Reverse restraining <laughs> order. order right? It was a reverse restraining here's, order. Here's the door, D. Barnes. <laughs> yeah. Here's the door. You have yeah. to stay away from him, ma'am. Yeah, right. <laughs> Which means you have to stay away from your career. Right. You can't work. Yeah. You're yeah. not allowed to be around him. And it wasn't a temporary thing. I mean, I think that was one of the things that was just so astonishing to the people at the panel, that, that you're being pushed out of your career mm-hmm. has had long-term consequences. You're being able to become established in some of the other things you tried to do. Eventually, right. people find out who you are and their consequences to that. Yeah. So in that very night as you were talking, you shared with the audience what your current circumstance was. Right. And there was a, a huge um, reaction. Let's let's listen to that. Uh, I don't know if some of you are familiar. If you're on Twitter right now, I'm actually homeless. I was evicted because it's been very hard for me to work. I had, like, regular jobs. I've worked for H&M, <laughs> Forever 21, TJ Maxx. Uh, I applied for Trader Joe's, like, all kinds of just nine to five jobs with you know great people usually i get on there no one knows anything sometimes two months three months sometimes two weeks they figure it out i've had supervisors who told me i'm a fan of ice cube i've had supervisors who actually put the eminem tape on my desk so it's like a a form of harassment now you know what am i going to do uh sue the company Possibly, I could I could have done that, right? But am I going to sue everybody? Am I going to be in court all the rest of my life? I got to keep it. I got to keep it moving. I don't think our work can be done as long as D Barnes is homeless. Thank you. I, 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 just I was just thinking the same thing. <laughs> this is not possible. As long as D Barnes does not have a career, as long as D Barnes has to consistently recognize that the long-term consequences are actually physical, they're real. It's time to go from being rhetorical and talking about it to actually doing things. So I I very much want those who are committed to doing something about this right now to to let us know, to let Dee know, to, to make it sure that when she leaves here, she has a sense of security. Let me tell you, that whole day was amazing because um, prior to, you know, when we finalized everything, because you guys invited me to be on this panel like the end of January, I believe, mm-hmm. first week of February. Mm-hmm. So as you see, everything was happening in that moment. Right. And um, 
it was released, you know, on the website that morning. Wow. And then by that evening, I was on your panel. Mm -hmm. So during the day, as it started, you know, going and trending a little bit, Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, you know, so I I had assumed that everyone there kind of maybe had a clue about it, maybe Mm -hmm. not. Mm -hmm. And just like me putting it out there in the first place, I wanted people to hear it from me. Yeah. Um, There's this quote, and I'm saying that night too, I don't know the origins, but it's like, you can overcome anything in life, Mm -hmm. but first you must be willing to live in your truth. Wow. And that was my truth. Yeah. I might have been up there looking, you know, I try to look as decent as possible. (laughs) Well, you know what? Everybody was looking great. Everybody was gorgeous. You know, Kenyette said, when you're going on a panel with Beverly Johnson, Johnson, you you got to have your face face I mean, I mean, and you sat me next to her. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> Am I looking right? I don't look right. Oh, oh everybody brought everybody it. Everybody brought it. All those sisters were beautiful. Everybody, everybody. And uh, you look like royalty up there with the blue and the crown. Oh, y'all got to see. Y'all know Professor Chris. I got these dope locks. But we won't get off the subject anyway. So, so you know, and yeah. then, um, yeah, so I felt, you know, in that space, in that moment in time, I mean, I know you say, like, oh, it comes from a place of courage and, I don't really see it as that. I mean, I know it does take courage to speak your truth, but it also speaking truth to power Mm -hmm. is just, (laughs) it's powerful. Yeah. And um, liberating. Mm -hmm. This is what's happening. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be ashamed of it. I'm going to hold my head up high and I'm going to get through this. Absolutely. And, and, and the support it was, was uh, overwhelming. The support was amazing. I mean, um, everyone on on the panel, you know, said, "Look, we cannot walk out of here and leave this situation wow. like it is." So I the know. panel um, donated honoraria to the GoFundMe, yes. you know, site. Other people, um, you know, kicked it up and and kicked it out. Um, and it was, I thought, it was an amazing moment of it really, you know, was. kind of galvanizing sisterhood. It's, it's it's one thing to create safe space for people to tell their stories but right this isn't just about storytelling this yes. is about doing something it's about right? real life yes and the consequences of real life and yes. then how do we move forward how do we um you know fix it how do we right those wrongs yeah. that's what i thought that your your whole goal was about the panel yeah. like okay this is what's happening now what do we do going forward yeah and because of that panel and because of that the, the hip-hop dx um the next day wendy williams spoke about me on her show Wow. Because wow. all of that stuff was out there. Kicked in. And, and, and then you eventually and were she invited on. Me. Yeah, she invited me on her show. Mm-hmm. First person mm-hmm. to invite me from the industry. And wow. I can't even. In how many years? I mean, a lot. <laughs> a lot. Decades. How many decades? Wow. Didn't somebody say that in your class? I know. <laughs> I know. Decades. I know. <laughs> decades. <laughs> decades. And then you said centuries. <laughs> That's what it felt yeah, like. It when you said like, that today, I was like, centuries. Yeah, exactly. And it was an honor to be with her because, um, you know, I know people have their own opinions about Wendy, um, but I think she's amazing. I've been listening mm-hmm. to her since she was on the radio, mm-hmm. um, followed her through to television because she used to do a, a show, too. She had a show where I used to watch it on the weekends. Um, and for her to, to say, hey, come here, sit down and talk mm-hmm. was just like, yeah. Amazing. And it was the first time we met, yeah. you know, too. Wow. Yeah. So wow. it was, it was, you know, because we traveled in the same circles, but we hadn't met. So yeah. it was an honor well, to be here. you know, it's kind of amazing. And this takes us back to the Me Too moment, right? Because all of this stuff had happened. It's not as though it was a secret. Right. But the, um, the expectation, the imperative that something be done about it hadn't galvanized right. until recently you know, until me too sort of became a rallying cry for 
honestly white women in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And I think that sort of generated a, hey, wait a minute. You know, we've got sisters who are still dealing with some stuff right. that hasn't really been addressed. So it was a, it even was, acknowledged I think I t- at all. Exactly. E- even though people know it. And it may, it takes me back to what you just said a few minutes ago, like um, the banishment, the we don't want to think about it. Right. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times people don't want to think about right. uh, what happens to some of our sisters because Number one, we know it could happen to us. Right. Right. Uh, Number two, I think some of our our allies don't want to think about it because it does say to them, what are you doing to facilitate this? Because if you're not doing something to interrupt it, Mm -hmm. you are basically doing something to allow it to To allow it to happen. Right. And I I think, you know, that going all the way back to what we were talking about earlier, like in the mid 20th century, all the way to slavery. Right. We don't want to remember the abuse of our sisters or mothers because it reminds us of our inability to step to it, yep. our shame about it. So we just kind of want to erase the woman. Mm-hmm. We want to erase the fact of right. it so we don't have to think about it. So I think what was so important is that this was a uh, an anti-erasure moment. It yes, was it like, was. Let's bring it back in. Let's draw in all of <laughs> yes. its details and its colors. Let's finish the outline. Exactly. <laughs> let's color exactly. in all the spaces. Well, so some part of filling in those spaces is actually looking inside to kind of figure out the what of it. So um, uh, Beverly Johnson stepped uh, up actually first to to tell a story about how America's dad um, had, um, you you know, abused his trust Mm -hmm. and uh, or her trust in him and put her in a situation in which she was uh, at least he thought she was defenseless. Right. And there was a lot in that story. I, I want to share it for a moment and, and, and come back and, and talk about our reaction to it. Okay. We also uh, came over to his home, my daughter and I, and uh, we met his children and his family. And then he said, you know, we've done all this stuff. Why don't you come back? And so we can really audition for the part of the role. And, and that's when the assault happened. And, um, you know, I was offered a cappuccino. I don't drink coffee. And he insisted. And I took a little swig of the coffee, and I immediately felt the room spin. And having been a drug addict, alcoholic drug addict, and sober, and now sober for 35 years. Mm. Yes. Thank you. I knew exactly what it was, but I was so incredulous. I was, I, I just looked at him and I just said, you're a motherfucker, aren't you? Mm. I'll never forget the expression on his face. It was like, <gasps> and then I just began to say the MF word over and over and louder and louder and louder and louder until he eventually just dragged me out and, you know, threw me in a taxi. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't remember anything else until I woke up the next day. I was very, very angry. I wanted answers. And um, I, I, I demand the answer the next day because I did make a phone call and his wife picked up the phone. And I realized that this was a, a war, a fight that you were not going to win. There were too many people in on it. NBC, the producers, the writers, the the people, the the cast member, everyone knew but me. 
So that was Beverly Johnson, the legendary supermodel who was one of the first black women to grace the cover of Vogue, Vogue magazine. magazine. It's amazing. So she opened and she's up gorgeous up close. Gorgeous, gorgeous. Woo, which beautiful. is why, like I said, everybody had to get beat for that. Yes, right? we did. We had to step up our game. We had to step up our did. game. And it was such a, I mean, uh, I remember being astonished um, about the story, basically because unlike many uh, of the others who were who still were, you know, under the influence right. of it, and it was like, can you know, questioning themselves, mm-hmm. she said. I knew what had happened. Yep. It wasn't she a knew sunny when she, when she said she started calling him a motherfucker. Yes. Could and you she, see that? I can see it so clearly. And it was the best visual of yeah. the night. Yes. Let me was. tell you, because you can see his face because, you know, she said his face had changed when she started cussing him out. That's because he realized, oh, shit, I'm not in control. Gig is up. <laughs> I didn't put in the blue pill <laughs> with the blue pill and then I didn't mix in the pudding right. <laughs> I had to do it. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, just to make light of a serious situation. Yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine being, and this happens to so many women mm-hmm. out in public um, with people they trust mm-hmm. to be drugged and raped by someone, by you, someone trust. you trust. That yeah. is like devastating. Yeah. That and, is devastating. And, you know, she talked about, you know, um, recognizing that there was a whole institution of enablers enablers built around Ooh, him and, and that's what i learned Ooh, that was that was really you know an eye opener. i mean you know the stuff happens but be, being brought inside and you know seeing through her eyes mm-hmm. how everything was structured to, right. to make it possible so her only choice was to go away you know and to be quiet right right, right. Yeah. yeah that's what they forced they back us into that corner yeah you know and and so it was it was so um uh resonant with the conversation about grooming mm-hmm, right because mm-hmm. you know we've talked about grooming and and when grooming comes up you know it is particularly in the context of sexual violence right. you know it tends to be you know talked about um in terms of well particularly trafficking and, and girls mm-hmm. and we had just come off of a town hall that saturday in which two black girls talked about having been groomed from the time they were eight oh my god uh, to basically you know go into the life as as they called it by the time they were 10 what and how many black girls are are caught up in it like at, in Los Angeles black girls are like less than 10% of the population they're over 70% of the girls who are trafficked what? so it, it it created sort of a, an awareness or need to uh, talk to young girls about what grooming looks like right. but this conversation took it further because uh, Beverly's conversation was a conversation about being groomed mm-hmm. you know when Beverly was talking about grooming it really it was for the first time that I ever thought about was I groomed Mm -hmm. and what does grooming look like Mm -hmm. because I wasn't sure it was something she had said about that you know the being familiar that was such a powerful moment when when Beverly pondered grooming and you picked up on it it led Jamila to actually talk about the grooming that black women experience in society writ large it's still mind-boggling to me listening to Beverly because I was like was I groomed you know I'm not just 28 years later, I'm thinking about, was I groomed? I I think we were all groomed. Mm. I think black women have been, we're groomed from girlhood to be, you know, the water carriers, 
the helpmates, the comfort, you know, like just to provide nurturing and support and solidarity and and silence. And it's one thing to not be able to get that in return, right? To see that when we're victims of racist violence and abuse and, and sexual violence from other people that we don't always get what we deserve from our own folks. But the idea that we must be, if we are not complicit with violence against us that happens within our community, that we are on the side of our oppressors, right. that we right. are working in, in, in cahoots with the state right. to harm our right. men. Right. It was really something, it, was an, it made me think about things that I hadn't thought about in a long time, mm-hmm. a long time, different mm-hmm. scenarios. And um, I've actually, I've, when I found out he was violent, it shocked me because I had never experienced, not even um, the anger. Hmm. You know what I mean? He was always. Just never anything that you saw. Not at, not at first. Not at first. That's what I'm saying. Because the, the first time I found out he was violent, I, I witnessed it. Mm-hmm. And I was shocked, mm-hmm. and I tried to have a conversation about it because I was like, "Yeah, oh, you who? This is not the who I thought you were," and completely dismissive of it. And dismissive I didn't know dismissive of, of talking to me about it. Dismissive uh, of as if it was a that it mattered. Dismissive of it was like none of your my business. Very like I wouldn't get, I wasn't getting any answers. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to talk about it. Was it another woman? It was a different woman. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was someone too that I didn't know well, mm-hmm. but I knew of her, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. it, it it shocked me. Yeah, it shocked me. And um, there were some other women with me. I'm not going to mention their names now, mm-hmm. but. I look back at them like, well, you know, and they seemed like they were in shock, even though they knew him better than I did. Yeah. Matter of fact, I, one of them had introduced me to him. Mm-hmm. So to see that and to know that, okay, how, do I still trust him? Do I think he's going to do that to me? And somehow I had, um, you know, convinced myself that, I was not in that space. And it was something that you had brought up earlier that I wanted to talk about where you say, um, you know, having a brother-sister relationship with him that I thought it would, it, it insulated me mm-hmm. from his dangerous side. Yeah. That was so important. Yeah, yeah. I had it in my mind that, you know, um, we, we, you know, which we say, we presume that uh, um, the gender violence is only perpetuated in romantic relationships. Right. That right, right there, right, right. super key. I, I think it does raise challenges for us, you know, as women mm-hmm. to self interrogate. Like, you know, how is it that we maintain relationships with men that we know are violent. We know we've got to tell ourselves something about it. Right. And we know they encourage us to tell ourselves that thing, mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, about mm-hmm. it. Like, okay, th- this isn't for you. You know, you don't have to worry about that. Right. And, and, you know, we value the relationships. We often don't want to break them off because of, you know, something we see. And once we make that compromise, we're kind of, you know, going down mm-hmm. the, the, the wormhole. Yeah, right? because I didn't condone the behavior yeah, at all and, right. and let me tell you as my friend you know checked him mm-hmm. <laughs> I had to check mm-hmm. him like are you know mm-hmm. try to get at him like are you serious because it amazed me too because there were, we, it wasn't just we it was a circle of friends so we there were men there too and none of these men were checking him why the black woman in the room got to check him why why the black woman in the room got to check him and, that, and that's why? what it was I was there amongst other men and women and uh, I had to check them. So, or I felt the need to check them, or I wanted to try. Why don't men check other men? Uh, 
I wish I could answer that. I really do. Because oh, well, I can't even imagine if he had that, if he was in that type of space where, and I'm not saying all the men around him course. approved that. And they probably did say some and might, you know, could be even to the point where you better not do that to my sister mm-hmm, my, mm-hmm. but it's not the point we're all your sisters we're all your, we your mothers are. you're all your yeah. aunties you're all your cousins whatever daughters and, and, and here giving shout out to the brothers who do check yes right so yes because there are know, a few call to men and there were a few around him one, that that right. said something but like i said and, everything's and, and check publicly that's what i was about to say they say it privately yeah, they say it privately right. but it don't go down privately the beat down is private right. why is the check exactly yes, that's exactly. what i'm talking about yeah. i mean and it, and it should be in the moment you yeah. don't wait till later when you buy yourself with the homie no yeah. it's in the moment in the heat of the moment you need to say hey, yo yeah let's pull it in pull it in well, reel it know, in one one part of the conversation that i think really just blew me away was the conversation that jamila brought to the table Oh, yes. About the the difference, the, the, the difference, right? Because, you know, your story and Beverly's story and Kenyette's story was all about not just the the, the violence and, and the abuse, but then the backlash mm-hmm. within the community when sisters tell the story right. so much that the traditional hierarchy that you know our society has in our head mm-hmm. about well the worst thing that could happen to a woman um, is to be a sexually assaulted by a stranger right and she flipped that on she on the head it, and it. said you know the worst thing uh, that could happen to her is not necessarily what most people think so right. let, let's listen to that there was a mask, there was a gun. I, you know, would not have been able to identify that person in a lineup, you know, if I tried. And these are the circumstances, again, for the rape that we, we mm-hmm. so many people think is the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. I think for me, I feel almost a sense of relief. One, knowing that one in three uh, women who look like me will have this experience at some point in their lifetime, I think I'd always accept it. And prior to knowing that statistic, that's something I learned as an adult, you know, but I think even as a teenager, somewhere in me was like, and, and I forget the writer who wrote these exact words, but I read it maybe in like a Jezebel article and it really resonated with me that when she was being sexually assaulted, she thought to herself, okay, well, here's my rape almost as if I've been waiting for you. Mm. And so I think I had sort of, you know, it's not something that I gave a lot of thought to prior to it happening. And it's certainly, it's honestly not something I've given a lot of thought to after it happened because there was a part of me that was like, well, this was pretty much bound to happen. You know, statistically it was going to, you know, if you put you and your two best friends in a room, one of you all was going to have this experience. Maybe I was the one who was tough enough to handle it, right? Maybe luckily it was me because I wasn't dealing with some of the triggers and issues or, you know, childhood sexual trauma that some of my sister girls were also living with. Um, But the fact that it was a stranger, I think, brings me a sense of comfort and relief because I didn't have to bear the load of this person is beloved, say, in my family, you know, this is one of my friends. This is, you know, somebody's frat brother or a member of a church that I go to or, you know, someone famous, an activist, a professor, a musician. You know, this wasn't somebody that I knew anything about. So I didn't have any emotional attachment to him. I didn't have to worry about defending myself against what he'd done to me uh, when I described it to other people because this person, you know, was part of a protected class, you know, so he's going to get this level of uh 
defensiveness, right? That I'm going to have to fight really hard to prove that this happened to me. Now, that's not to say that I had a good experience with the Prince George's County Police Department um, and the detectives that were responsible for handling it. And I was treated like a suspect, like so many uh, rape victims are. I had to answer a lot of questions about where I was and why was I there. And, you know, the the detective actually said to me, you know, sometimes someone may lose some money because, you know, he robbed me gambling or maybe they overspent and they may come up with something like this to tell their families so that they're not embarrassed. And he says this to me within hours of the attack. We're not talking about, there were no weeks of interrogation. That was it. You know, I don't think I ever spoke to him again. I got a call from the Maryland Rape Crisis Center checking on me three or four months later because I remember I was walking down Marcus Garvey Boulevard in Brooklyn. I was like, well, good thing I am okay. <laughs> like, well, what was the plan? What exactly were you doing? What were you waiting for? You know? Um, so with that, I often think about when a black woman is raped by someone who looks like her, having to think about if I involve law enforcement, one, I can't say that they have my best interest in mind. Regardless of who the, the person who's harmed me is, I, don't, I can't say they have my best interest in mind. I can't say they're going to believe me or support me. And then I have to think about this is one of my brothers. What are they going to do to him? So, you know, I have to say, you know, I, I, I think when, when Jamila took us there, mm -hmm. it, it got a lot of people thinking. Oh, yeah. You know, a lot of, of people course, thinking. Of course, it's easier to be assaulted by someone you don't know, a stranger, as opposed to someone you do know, that it, you yeah. trust. And, and all of the, the, the things that go with that, because yeah. there's a lot of variables that go with that, knowing somebody, you know, for example, like me traveling in the same circle of us having the same people that we know and deal with yeah. and people having to choose sides. Yeah. But one another thing about um, besides Dream, uh, Tim Dog, mm. rapper in the community, came out with a song called Fuck Compton. And that was in regards to the attack on me. And it was actual line in the song that says, Dre beating on D from Pump It Up, step to the dog and get fucked up. And it was like all of the Bronx was behind him, which is the birthplace of hip hop. Uh -huh. So, I mean, he was the one that, that said something publicly and it was put down on a record. Music mm -hmm. is forever. Mm -hmm. my, my only, I loved it. I, my issue was the title because I had people in family, friends in Compton that lived there. So my only problem with the song was the title but well, what yeah. he said yeah what you know because you can't punish a whole city for somebody's he he turned, somebody's he behavior to a territorial beat. right right he turned yeah. into the all of like he you know he categorized the whole city mm -hmm. as being like that and it's not true and there's certainly you know people who were getting beat in the place he was from right right, right. you know right it, so so why would you why would you turn it into that but yeah. i do like the fact that he um said what he said which you know is is the polar opposite of what eminem did right right yeah, which you which Turn extended into, the trauma yes. eight years after it happened yeah and turned me into a punchline yeah I yeah mean, so, so you said you talked so, about that a little bit i mean and when you think of the word punchline yeah so i'm gonna be punched you know lyrically yeah so for people who don't know uh, about the 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 record, the song is uh, what, "Guilty what Conscience." Mm -hmm. "Guilty Conscience" is a song produced by Dr. Dre, and then um, Eminem is featuring Eminem. But for me, it's a it's a constant, it's a emotional abuse. It's a daily reminder of it. So I'm not sure if that song hadn't come out, would things have died down for me? Not sure about that. But because that song came out eight years after. You know, trying to live my life, 
going on with myself, uh, raising my, my, my children. At the time, I had a five-year-old daughter who heard the song, knew who I was, and I had to explain to my five-year-old daughter what it meant, because she, she heard it. She was smart, mom, why are they saying that about you? And I, I remember trying to shut the radio off when the song came on, and I couldn't, she heard it, I had to pull over, I cried. Because now I've got to explain to my daughter you know, five beautiful years I've had, no, you know, the innocence is gone. For your story to become a punchline, you know. Well, it's a way to change the narrative. Yes, it's right. It's a way to, 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 you know. Diminish. Diminish, dehumanize. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean, degrade. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that he's given license to, to do that. He's you given know, license. He's given, he's given license permission. Yes. By, you know, yeah. a black man to... I mean, can we just say <laughs> a black man giving a white man permission to degrade a to, black woman? Yeah. So what about the solidarity there? Right. Where Mm-mm. where's the allegiance in this moment? This is where patriarchy trumps, you yeah. know, racial solidarity at any moment. At right? any moment. Yeah. At any moment. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly. Well, Clearly. speaking of race, um, uh, Stephanie stepped to it because, you know, we were basically talking about this as, you know, moments of intra-racial harmony or disharmony, the failure, you know, of our community right. to seriously center what happens to black women. The effects of slavery, the basically. The effects of slavery. And then she, like, threw it in, like, well, as long as we're talking about slavery, let me tell you something. Mm. And so, um, you know, some part of me, too, is framed as solidarity among women, you know, to deal with our common vulnerability ability to sexual abuse and other right. forms of assault but she historicized the relationship between black women and white women to talk about some stuff that went down in slavery there's a story um, of a woman named Henrietta Butler she was enslaved in Louisiana and so in 1940 this woman Flossie McElwee she she worked for the federal government and she sat down with Henrietta to ask her you know about her experience in slavery and so I'm reading this and I'm saying okay so I'm I'm, I'm reading these kind of this litany of horrors that Henrietta experienced and I'm waiting for um, the moment in which she identifies the perpetrator of these acts of sexual violence which she describes and so I was shocked to realize that she wasn't talking about a white man she was talking about a white woman her owner, Emily Haiti, who had um, essentially forced her to have sex with an enslaved man. And when they would have children, she would sell the boys and keep the girls and continue the process. So she would continue to force these enslaved females to, to, to have sex with men that weren't of their choosing and have children by these men. And she, she, it was an economic calculation. So from that, what I, what I take from that is um, that there are circumstances in which white women understand that they're oppressed because of their gender identities, but they can exercise and wield an extraordinary power because of their racial identities. And some women choose their racial identity. They choose white supremacy. Now that Ooh. really blew people away. Yes, it did. <laughs> I mean, I was today years old when I <laughs> I learned I was I must read that book. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. was just uh, it was very eye opening and very very educational to me. I mean, you kind of know it; it's in the background, but to hear it. Mm-hmm. laid out for you and play mm-hmm. oh. so you know that really set a challenge I think for us to come together with as I called it there sort of a truth and reconciliation 
You know, if mm-hmm. we really want to talk about the challenges of sisterhood, we have to really talk about the historical dimensions um, of the lack of sisterhood, the fact that black women were exploited, the fact that, you know, it's not always been the case that white women have been innocent of our sexual abuse. Many right. times, you know, as Stephanie's uh, work shows, they have been the agents of it. Mm. And that's a very difficult history you know, to grapple with. It is, it is. Mm. You know what I mean? And then how does it play into now? Right. How does it play into today? Because we were just talking about how the whole Me Too has been co-opted. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And women, you know, black women in particular have been left. Like, wait, wait, your turn. Yes. Well, and you know, the fact then that we've got Me Too out here, the fact that, you know, sort of the whole Time's Up framework mm-hmm. has gone beyond the question of harassment and abuse to questions of power, right. you know, in the industry, it does raise the question about how do black women show up in the conversation about power. So Rashida Jones uh, talked about the need to bring women of color more centrally into, you know, the Time's Up moment. Mm-hmm. So uh, Time's Up uh, Woke, Time's Up Women of Color um, has organized women of color. And then there's even an organization of black women within that. So right. one of the really, I think, um, important dimensions of thinking about this industry mm-hmm. is to think about what are the narratives that that get told and don't get told right. uh, about black women so she she had a she had a lot to say about um being at the table it's been mainly you know white het cis males making decisions for a really long time it's systemic um the good news is that everybody in Hollywood is so scared. <laughs> They're so scared. And we have employed the very, very um, powerful device of shame. Um, we walk into rooms and say, and show them their numbers and say, is this really, this is what your studio looks like? This is what your network looks like? You know that doesn't represent the demography of this country, right? You know you're gonna lose viewers because you're not representing the people who wanna watch your shows. You have an audience out there. So there, there is starting to become a bit more momentum in terms of people wanting to get creators, black female creators in the room. You know, it's clear that Hollywood is a male-dominated mm-hmm. space. It's so clear the that world. The world. <laughs> the world. Um, it's clear that some women have a bit of a toehold in that space. Right. A bit. Mm-hmm. And black women have less. Have less, yeah. So as allies mm-hmm. in these spaces, one of the challenges is to figure out how to use that toehold yeah. to bring more black bring women more into those spaces yes. so we can begin to tell our own stories. Exactly. Right? See our ourselves in these spaces, not just in front of the camera, mm-hmm. but behind the camera as well. Making decisions. Yeah. You know what I mean? Of what stories are going to be told, like yes. you said earlier. Like who's going to green light the deep barn story. Oh. Yes. Okay. So what what do you, what do you see in the future, D? What's what what do you hope uh will come out of this Me Too moment? This Me Too moment. What I hope will come out of it is the the to clarify a lot of myths. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I call the book Music, Myth, and Misogyny. Okay. Uh, Memoirs of a Female MC. Uh-huh. And that's because a lot of a lot of MCs, um, especially women in particular, they don't they, sometimes they don't want to hear the title female because they categorize them. But I feel like women bring something to the table that men cannot. Mm-hmm. So there's a different element there. And hip hop is unbalanced right now. 
Mm-hmm. You know about the, the forefathers, the founding fathers of hip hop, but you don't know about the matriarchs. Yes. You don't know their names and you should. Right. You know, people like Shyrock, um, Lady B, Lisa Lee, Debbie D, um, the, the, you know, they were the us girls in Beach Street. Mm-hmm. Then we have the Mercedes ladies. We have Sequence, which features, um, you know, Angie Stone. Mm-hmm. These are women that all female rappers, I feel, should know. They are the foundation. They're the reason why we do what we do. Mm-hmm. And they don't they don't have that. It's because the the, the culture is unbalanced right now. And the so, more and when it didn't start out that way. Right. You know, those women were in the park with those men the same time, on the mic, on turntables, but we don't and we don't have that and bring those and then the the misogyny in the in the sort of cultural unfolding of the art form erases that they were part of the art right. form. Right. And it's erasure you know, of black women. It's like black when and we brown started women. when we were talking about, you know, Rosa Parks, you right. know, her role as a woman fighting for women mm-hmm. in civil rights history has gotten erased. Exactly. You don't know that. The fact that you don't know it means that we're ignorant and ill informed. Mm-hmm. It means that we make stupid decisions. Yes, and what you were saying earlier about um how you don't know that about Rosa Parks, like that movie like hidden figures mm-hmm. we are black women are hidden figures and we're right in the forefront we're right in the center of everything but we're still hidden mm-hmm. how yeah you know what i mean how is that and so um it goes back to your title that you gave me for my mixtape peeling back the layers of denial <laughs> <laughs> we gotta peel back those layers that's we gotta right. peel back those layers and expose it and i think that that's what this time is about the time is about now listening and hearing and comprehending what's going on and not being in denial about it, facing that truth. Dee, it's been such a blessing. I mean, from the moment you rolled in, it's like, okay, I, I, yes. I feel the sister. Yes. I'm just so delighted that we've had this opportunity to connect our paths Thank across. You. I can't wait to see what's going to happen. I'm I can't excited. wait to get my hands on that oh, book. Oh, I can't wait for you to read that. So, you know, and then I want to come back. Yes, you know, of course. So many, many times. Thank yes. you, Dee, for spending Thank you for the time. Me. It's I been appreciate a, you. It's been great. It's been a, you know, a blessing. <laughs> Shout out to all the women out there. Stay strong. Stay positive. I love you. Till next time, I'm Kimberly Crenshaw. And I'm Dee Barnes. And we out this piece. (laughs) Keep listening and support us on our Patreon page for bonus content from all of our interviews. You can find us at Intersectionality Matters on social media, at AAPF.org, and everywhere podcasts are available. Intersectionality Matters is produced and edited by Julia Sharp-Levine. Additional support was provided by Jira Asim and Michael Kramer. Special thanks to Dee Barnes for co-hosting, to the rest of the panelists for sharing their stories with us, and of course, to the Hammer Museum. They co-sponsored and recorded this event. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters. Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation. I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. And law was my girlfriend. It was all I had. What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away? We got to attack Scarcella. Come and get me. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.